Let him hear what the Spirit says. Hear what the Spirit says. Before I dive into this message this morning, I want to say that this statement undergirds the whole ethos of what we're doing as a church right now. We want to hear what the Spirit says. Hear the Spirit. What do I mean by Spirit? Well, as Christians, we believe in one God who has revealed himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that God is greater than us in every way that we can conceive. He's greater than us in power. He's greater than us in wisdom. He's greater than us in love. And we also say that God is greater than us in personhood. Well, what do I mean by this? I could ask the question, and this would be a bit strange, what, what is this? And you say, well, it's a music stand. But I wouldn't, it would be strange to ask the question, who is this? That's just absurd. It's, it's a music stand, that's it. It's an object. But then when I move up in order of being and I ask, what are you? You say, well, I am a human being. And I ask, well, who are you? And you say, well, I'm Kent, or I'm, I'm Dennett, or I'm Mr. Long. But then we move up in order of being again. We move up to God, and we ask God, what are you? And he says, I am the one divine being. And we ask God, who are you? And he says, I am Father. I am Son, I am Holy Spirit. So you can see as we move up in order of complexity, as we move from object to human being and from human being to divine being, that God increases in every sense, even in personhood. God is greater than us in every way. And so when we, we talk about God, we say that he is one God in three persons. And so the Holy Spirit, one of those persons that makes up God, we want to hear the Spirit. These words, like I said, they undergird the whole ethos of what we're doing as a church. And you may have wondered, why is it that when we preach here, we seem to go deeper, we seem to unpack more, we try to really understand what the text is saying to us. And then sometimes, week after week, we're just going from one passage to the very next passage in the text. Why do we do that? Well, these words, hear what the Spirit says, undergirds our whole conviction for what we call expository teaching, or here, ex explained, explanatory applied uh, teaching. We want to hear what the Spirit says. Not my opinions, not other people's ideas, not societal trends, as important as those are, but we want to hear what the Spirit says. And so notice this, Spirit says, this isn't just a human book. Now, it, it has a human element to it. I'm not, uh, there's no need to try and hide that. The, the, the characters and, and the cultures and the languages of the authors are unmistakable in this text. But when we say the Bible is inspired, that it is a holy book, I don't mean this in the same way that my Muslim friends say that the Quran is inspired. Is God's holy book to them. Well, what, why? Well, because for my Muslim friends, behind the Quran is the belief that it was held on golden tablets at the right hand of angel Gabriel, and it was dictated to Muhammad. So Muhammad wasn't involved in the production of the Quran, only its delivery. So whereas the Bible says, in contrast to this, humans wrote this, but it's God's voice. 
So the Bible is, rather than being this view of divine dictation, it's a divine human collaboration. And so this is what Christians mean when we say that the Bible is inspired. That Paul says, speaking of the Old Testament, that all scripture is God-breathed, that it is inspirited, it is inspired by God, that it's carried to us on the very breath of God, that it is God's word. And we want to hear what the Spirit says, not said, but says, notice it's in the present tense, that it's it's relevant, that it's God's contemporary word. It's not written just to the skeletons of history. It's written to us living today, here. So this passage we're reading in Revelation comes to us in a a genre we're not familiar with. I, I brought this up last time, but this is a genre of apocalypse. It's this genre where prophetic symbolic dreams and visions reveal God's perspective so that the present can be viewed in light of history's final outcome. It reveals God's perspective so that the present can be viewed in light of history's final outcome. So we want to hear what the Spirit says, what he says today through his living contemporary word. And we want to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this this might catch our our attention, but the first first verse of what we read was, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. So this is written to a, a particular church at a particular time with particular people, particular concerns. This letter, in other words, was not written directly to Church 21. So two weeks ago, I gave the example when we're reading these messages to the churches that it's like reading someone else's mail. Let me unpack that a bit further. These messages to the seven churches are not written to us, but they're written for us. They're not written to us, but they're written for us. Now, speaking from my church background, I think there's a danger that we become spiritual hypochondriacs. Now, a hypochondriac is someone who thinks any, uh, you know, ache or pain they have, as, as minor as it might be, is, is a symptom of a major disease. So you might be reading an article on the internet about uh, brain cancer, and you start to think, oh, that, that last headache I had, that's the onset. That's the first symptom that I have brain cancer. But I, I think there's a danger that we can begin to do this of the text as well. And I've literally done this before. One of the dangers as we read through these seven letters, the seven messages to the seven different churches, is that we start to think that each one is describing you, that each issue, each, each church, it's me, you know, it's me. But it's, it's not always you. It's, it's not always me. We need to wear it, in other words, if it fits. So these messages are written to particular churches in particular contexts. And God's word comes to us via them, via their historical context, via their language, their struggle. Not written to us, but written for us. And so, what the Spirit says to the church in Philadelphia is what the Spirit says to the churches. It's relevant to us. It's God's contemporary word. And each, with each one of these messages, we want to work it out and see what applies to us, what fits us. And so he who has ears, let him hear 
what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's start, verse 7. And the angel in the church of Philadelphia write. Well, where was Philadelphia? Well, like the last six churches we've looked at, Philadelphia uh, was located in Asia Minor. And today it's, called, it's a city called Al-Ashahir, and it's uh, about 40,000 people, and they live uh, on the side of a, a hill, a mountainous sort of region. It's a very fertile area. It was once known uh, as a wine-growing region because of its soil. And the, the soil area is, is fertile because it's volcanic. And also related to it being volcanic is that there's volcanoes uh, in that region, and they... Uh, this church, as well as the other ones, Philadelphia and the other uh, cities in the area, had faced a number of earthquakes. And uh, Philadelphia was hit particularly hard in AD 17. Um, and uh, Strabo, a historian who lived at the time, wrote that uh, following this event, people, uh, not even the walls are safe, but in a sense are shaken and caused to crack every day. Implying another historian of the time, the walls of the houses are incessantly opening. In other words, there was a sense of insecurity, a sense of shakiness about what was going on there. But there was also something else that's going on in our passage that sets this church apart from some of the other churches we were looking at. You see, they weren't just living in houses that were shaky. They also had a shaky self-perception. Well, what do I mean by this? Well, most of us care quite a bit about what others think about us. We put stake in it. And even if we say, no, I don't care about what other people think about me. I'll, I'll be the judge of myself only. We aren't really any better off. We are only left trying to determine then what do we judge ourselves against? Against what standard am I smart? Against what standard am I a good mom? Against what standard am I successful? We are left floundering. We are our own worst critics. You see, when we judge ourselves, usually our judgment is largely determined by what we think others think or what we imagine others think about us. And so the church in Philadelphia had this shaky self-perception and the messages to the church in Revelation give us what Jesus judges in his churches, his perception of what he thinks of them. And we what we find is that Jesus' perception of the churches is quite different from what they think of themselves. Last week, Dwight preached on, on Sardis, and this was the church that had a reputation for being alive. They were thought of by those around them as, as big stuff. They were a hopping church. And yet to them, Jesus says, you have a reputation of being alive, and yet you are dead. See, Jesus thought very differently of them than what they thought of themselves. Laodicea, the church coming next week, they thought of themselves as, as big stuff, as glitzy. But to them, Jesus only has humbling rebuke. To our church, the church of Philadelphia, they were not a hopping church or a glitzy church. They were puny. They probably didn't think of themselves as much. Other people probably didn't think much of them. They were frightened. They were discouraged. They probably felt like they were only holding on by a thread. But again, Jesus sees things very differently. 
It's not others' perceptions or our own perceptions that matter. It's Jesus' perception of them that matters. It's what Jesus thinks of us that counts. And to their shaky self-perception, we'll see that Jesus offers no rebuke because it wasn't a rebuke that they needed. It was encouragement. And here's what I want you to take home today. If you don't hear anything else I say this morning, to the church that thought they were weak and puny, Jesus says, I see you and I see your faithfulness. And I want to remind you that the only opinion that counts is mine. I see you and I see your faithfulness. And I want to remind you that the only opinion that counts is mine. And so Jesus does this by writing words of encouragement. And these words contain some striking imagery. And I want to look at four images or illustrations that Jesus uses to this church in Philadelphia to remind us that no matter what culture might think or what we think of ourselves, it's what Jesus thinks of you that matters. And so we're going to start by looking, being reminded of who Jesus is, that he is the key holder, and then out of that, what he gives, an open door, so that we can then know who we are. So first, we have who he is. The key holder. It's a reminder that when we feel weak and puny, know who Jesus is. He's the key holder. Revelation 3 7 comes as a, almost a direct quotation out of this Old Testament passage. And I will place on him. The, on his shoulder, the key of the house of David, and he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. Now, what sort of key is this? Is it like the scarlet key, that little uh, key pin that McGill gives out to a few students a year who demonstrate uh, academic excellence and student leadership? Well, no. <laughs> um, and it's also not like that giant key you might get from the mayor if you, if you rescue a cat something brave like that. No, these keys don't unlock anything but a momentary spotlight on your life. This is the key of David. And in this passage, there's a man named Shebna, and who is uh, the chief steward. He's a, the prime minister of the house of King Hezekiah. And Shebna, as, as the palace administrator, it's as, he is, it's as if he has the key of David. And this was an important job because he controlled access to the palace. He controlled access to the presence of the king. So imagine like an access card or like a set of master keys that would let you into the White House or, or into 24 Sussex Drive or like both combined. Like amazing access, amazing power, amazing authority. But Shebna, the person in this passage, he's abused his authority, used it to serve his own interests. And, and so to him, God says, you're fired. And then he says... And in that day, <clears throat> I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the house of Judea. And here it is. And I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David, and he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open." So Eliakim will take over the responsibility from Shemna. There's going to be a, a transfer of the, 
the access and the authority. So why does Jesus take this obscure Old Testament passage about this guy named Eliakim and apply it to himself? Well, Jesus is saying that in the same way Eliakim had access and authority to the kingdom of Hezekiah, so Jesus has, I am the one that has access and authority to the kingdom of God. It is Jesus who holds the key of David. He has the master keys. He has the access card. It is Jesus who determines who the kingdom of God is open to and who it is closed to. He alone has the divine authority. He alone has the divine right of say. This is who Jesus is. And so listen to what it's saying. Jesus' opinion as the one who holds the key is the only one, with that considered, it's the only one that matters. And so when we know who Jesus is, the divine key holder, then we can understand what we have been given. And this brings us to our second image, that of the open door. In Revelation 3, verse 8, it says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. And I know you have but little power, and have kept my word, and not denied my name. Behold, behold, I will take those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and they are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. We'll come back to this idea of open door, but first I want to explain some of the context here. It was very hard <clears throat> to be a Christian in Asia Minor at that time. To maintain uh, order in the Roman Empire, the law was that everyone had to worship the empire, to acknowledge that Caesar was Lord. The Jews, because they're an ancient religion, an ancient monotheistic religion, were granted an exception, a sort of umbrella or uh, a roof of protection against this clause. And because Christianity uh, started primarily amongst Jews who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah, the true fulfillment of Judaism, Christians were initially found meeting in the synagogues. After all, they had, um, think about it, the same scripture. They, they believed in a, in, a, in, a, in a Jew, Jesus, right? So in this text, <clears throat> but it wasn't long uh, be, between the Christians uh, the Jews who acknowledged Jesus as Messiah and those who didn't, it wasn't long before there was tension. And we saw this in Smyrna, and we see it here in Philadelphia, that those Jews who didn't accept Jesus as Messiah had begun to disown those who did, to exclude the Christians from the synagogues. So they were literally saying, you can't stay under the roof of our protection, and they closed the door of the synagogue on their faces. And so in this text, Jesus calls them the synagogue of Satan, and by calling them a synagogue of Satan, it seems a little harsh, doesn't it? But this isn't uh, meant to be anti-Semitic. This isn't a statement against the Jews. But it's a statement to say that behind all opposition we face is Satan. Remember one of Jesus' own disciples, uh, Peter, right? Jesus says when, when Peter tries to obstruct the will of God, when Peter tries to you know, close the proverbial door on, on Jesus, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And that's a way of saying... Uh, acknowledging the power that lies behind the opposition. And that can free us, actually, so that when we face opposition, we know uh, that we don't hold grudges because we know the opposition that lies behind it. Uh, but anyways, the point uh, is that the, 
the Philadelphian Christians were no longer under that roof of protection offered by Judaism, and they, they were now open to facing persecution by the Roman Empire. We know uh, from correspondence uh, at the time, Emperor Trajan, that by AD 98, it was illegal to be a Christian. What they would do, if anyone was thought to be a Christian, they would be brought before the proconsul, and they would be asked to curse Jesus and worship the emperor. And if they refused, uh, they were put to death. And so it was hard for a Christian in Philadelphia. Uh, it, was hard, it was hard to be a part of the church. So the, there were closed doors facing the church in Philadelphia. And so to the church that's facing persecution, and to the church that had the door of the synagogue slammed in their face, Jesus says, I have placed before you an open door, a door of, of welcome, a door of access to God's presence, a door of belonging. And how could he do this? How could Jesus place before them the open door? Because Jesus too faced a closed door. He too had the door of the synagogue closed on him. But there's more. Church family, we close the door on Jesus all the time. Maybe the idea of Jesus as keyholder is a scary one to you. Maybe you don't want to have Jesus to have authority and access in your life. Or maybe for some of us, we don't want Jesus to have access to particular areas of our life. Areas like our five-year plan, or how we treat our family, or our bedroom. We want to rule ourselves, and we slam the door at God, and the result is separation from God. But God didn't want that to be the end of the story. Jesus came to our side of the door. On the cross, he endured the consequence of our closed door, separation from God, the Father. And to what end? And facing it, he overcame it. He came to unlock our door, but it's up to us to go through it. And will you go through it? That means giving up control of your life. That means giving up the keys to your life. But God's presence, know that God's presence is on the other side of that door. So this is what Jesus is reminding the church in Philadelphia when he speaks of the open door. That to the church that had the door of the synagogue slammed on them, Jesus has offered the open door of his kingdom. To the church that felt excluded and unwanted, that they were welcomed and belonged. In church family, it is when we see who God is, that he has the authority. We can see God's perspective of us, that we are welcomed and belonged. We are able to face the closed doors of our life. Because we all face closed doors, don't we? We face the closed doors. We wanted to be further ahead in our career, and that door seemed to close on us. We wanted to be out of debt by now, and until now that door seems closed on us. We wanted to be married or in a relationship, but that door seemed closed on us. And to all our closed doors, Jesus reminds us that he is the good key holder, that he shuts what no one can open, and that he opens what no one can shut. And I want to give you a story. I want to, uh, well, I guess, apologize, because this is a, a bit of a, a distant context for us. But you remember my buddy, uh, Dan. Sorry. You remember my buddy, Dan, who was here with us in January. 
Uh, and we, he came up and we presented about uh, some of the stuff that had been happening at McGill on campus with, with Uncover McGill. Well, not, not long ago, Dan was visiting one of his friends uh, in Ecuador. And he, this is a friend who lives and he serves in, in, uh, with, with a tribe in one of the jungles uh, there. And Dan went to visit this friend uh, in Ecuador and he was staying there in the jungle and one night he had a dream. And in this dream he saw one of the hostile neighboring tides actually doing a raid on the tribe that he was staying in. And six days later, that dream became a reality for Dan. And as he was there, a tribe rushed in, armed, and began to take women and put them in one of the tents of that tribe. And they were armed, and Dan says, I knew that God, because God had given me that dream, I knew that there was a reason for what was happening here. I knew that the reason God had shown me that this was about to take place was because God was demonstrating his authority over that situation. That God had foreseen it and he was the key holder. And so knowing this, Dan felt an uncanny boldness. And he walked, he says, I walked right past those armed invaders and it's as if they didn't even see me. I walked right in front of them. And he says, I walked right to the door of that tent. I opened them, I unbound the woman and together we escaped into the jungle. And you see, in this whole process, not a single person opposed him because if God is for us, who can be against us? Jesus is the one who has authority. And when we walk with him, we'll see the closed doors of our life are only there to point us to the ones that are open. And that we should, when we see this, it should give us the same courage and authority that it gave my friend Dan. This isn't just for the jungles of Ecuador. It's for the streets of Montreal. So what does this look like in Montreal? It's first, take courage in the mission that God has given us. That the, the circumstances or the people in our life that seem impossible to us, God is able to open. In our text today, we saw that some of those in the synagogue, some who seemed impossible to reach, acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah who loved them. And second, find comfort. That knowing when you might feel like a misfit at work, at school, in your family, that you belong, that you're welcome. You are welcomed by the one who matters most in the place that matters most. And this is what we have been given. This is the image of the open door. The next image we have is that of a pillar. Jesus says in verse 12, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Remember, Jesus' Jesus's perception of us is different than our self-perception. It's not what others think of us that counts. It's what Jesus thinks of us that counts. What did Jesus think of the church in Philadelphia's shaky self-perception? He says in verse eight, I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Jesus acknowledges that yes, you have little strength, that they by all outward appearances were, were weak and felt puny and yet Jesus, he sees a strength in them, that they have, that they have kept his word, that they have not denied his name, that in a time of persecution, in a time of doors being closed on them, they were strong where it mattered most. They were strong in faithfulness. 
You see, Jesus judges us very differently than we judge ourselves. He doesn't judge a church by the number of people attending it. He doesn't judge a church by the number of programs it has, but by its faithfulness to him. And so to the church that was thought of by those around them as weak, that thought of themselves as weak, Jesus says, I see you as a pillar. I see you as strong. And pillars are not only a symbol of strength, but they are also necessary and permanent. And so, for example, you could take out the seats of this theater. You could move around the objects on this wall, right? But you wouldn't be able to remove the pillars that support the roof. You wouldn't be able to remove the beams, or it would be an engineering nightmare. The place would, would fall in, right? The pillars are necessary. The pillars are here to stay. They're permanent. And so to a church that felt shaky, a church that felt insecure, Jesus says, you are here to stay. You were permanent in my kingdom. To a church that felt unnecessary and disposable, a church that felt like they were just another brick in the wall, barely holding on. Jesus says, <clears throat> Maybe you feel tired and discouraged. You wonder what impact you can have for God. You feel like you're barely keeping up with life. You might be physically or emotionally weighed down, feeling like, like a reed that was once strong and yet is bruised by the weight of life. Or maybe you feel tired, you feel discouraged. You wonder what impact can you have for God when you're barely keeping up. I'm sorry. Or it might be that you see other people make an impact on communities using the gifts and the talents that God has given them and you wonder, what do I have to offer? You don't know how God wants to use you and your gifts or your talents for them. You feel weak like you do, like I do. <laughs> like a wick barely smoldering. But remember what Jesus thinks of you. He is the one who fulfilled the messianic promise in Isaiah 42.3 where he says, a breezed reed he will not break, and a burning wick he will not quench. A breezed reed he will not break, and a burning wick he will not quench. You see, Jesus will not break you in your discouragement. He will not snuff you out in your weakness. It's his perception of you that matters. It's his opinion of you that counts. It is the only opinion that counts. And so that you know, when you can feel discouraged, that when you feel fatigued, stay strong in what matters most, in faithfulness, because you are utterly integral. You are utterly necessary. You are permanent in the kingdom of God. And God delights in working through his people like you and me. And he is making us a necessary and permanent part of what he's doing here in Montreal. No one can pluck you from his hand. You are a crucial part of the kingdom of God in breaking into this city. What you do at your work, your schooling, and your city groups is of great importance. And so know who you are, that you're not just another brick in the wall, and that one day you will be seen for who you are, a pillar standing in the temple of God. What a striking and encouraging image that Jesus gives us here. And so the final image is that we are inscribed. 
we are inscribed with a new name. Revelation 3.12 reads, I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. Jesus will write on you his name, the name of God. This is meant to encourage us, but what does it mean? What do you write your name on? I write my name on the... Sorry. I like books. I like books. Uh, I love books. I write my name on the cover of the books I buy so that... When I lend them out, hopefully, I'll get them back. Uh, <clears throat> you know who you are. <laughs> but what does it mean when I name, uh, what does it mean uh, when I write my name on a book? It means that the book belongs to me, that I value the book, that I own the book. Listen, Jesus writes his name on the book of your life. You belong to him, and as Lord, he values you. And Jesus doesn't write, he doesn't just write his name on us. He will also inscribe our name on the city of God, the new Jerusalem. And so to those, those Philadelphian Christians who, who probably felt like they didn't belong in Philadelphia, Jesus says, I know you don't feel like you belong. I know you feel excluded, but you do belong. You belong in the city of God, the new Jerusalem that's coming down out of God, from God out of heaven. You know, I think uh, as Canadians, surrounded in lots of conversations about rights, I don't think we grasp the full implications uh, of what, if it, what, it, what it means to have citizenship. Um, my sister Maranatha is part of the Disaster Assistance and Relief Team with Samaritan's Purse, which is a Christian humanitarian international aid organization. And this past January, she went to uh, Bangladesh to help with the Rohingya crisis. And if you don't know, the Rohingya are a people group, a predominantly Muslim people group, who have never been recognized as a people group, who have never even been given citizenship in, in their country, the country of, uh, this predominantly Buddhist country, or sorry, yeah, Buddhist country, the country of uh, Myanmar. And uh, Maranatha says, or told me that uh, when a, a Rohingya person would encounter uh, another citizen of Myanmar, it, as, as an act almost of, of exclusion, often that person wouldn't even, even call them by their name. And so following an attempt by the military in Myanmar to drive out the uh, Rohingya people, many of them uh, fleeing death, fled to neighboring Bangladesh to some refugee camps. So there's a few hundred thousand people there. And so humanitarian organizations were called in and there was an outbreak because of the crowded conditions in the camp, an, an outbreak of diphtheria. And so, uh, and 
in humanitarian work, it's, it's very easy with the, the sheer volume of cases to start to just treat people as numbers. And just to give you some context, about 70, with thousands, these thousands of cases, about 75 people a day uh, coming in to be treated with six day nurses and, and three, three night nurses. So with the sheer volume of people, it's easy to just treat people as numbers. And after about a week, uh, Maranatha and the other nurses started to notice uh, something that unlike uh, some of the other uh, situations, contexts that were very difficult that they had ministered in, that the, 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 the hospital, though it was crowded, was strangely silent. And Maranatha said um, that, they, that they realized something there, that um, these people who had never been even recognized or named that they needed to be treating them differently. And so to try and instill in them the idea that you are inherently valuable that because you are created in the image of God, when, when someone new came to the hospital, they would sit them down and they would ask them, they say, what is your name? What is your name? And then they, they would orient them and say, you know, these are the facilities and, you know, here's where the bathroom is. We're, we're, so, we're so sorry you're sick but we're so glad you're here. And she said the difference that it made was extraordinary. That as the whole, the whole mood of the camp began to change, it went from being bleak and gray to being, people were talking again. They were talking to each other. They were sharing their stories with the DART team. And she said there was one woman she saw who was holding her face. She said, well, is everything okay? And she said, no, it's just that I haven't smiled in so long. You see, to a people that always felt excluded, that haven't even been given a name, more or less a citizenship, this is the difference it makes to feel belonged. This is the difference it makes to feel welcome. And so I think in that same way, in which sometimes we take for advantage this idea of citizenship here in Canada, in that same way, think of how much more it means to have citizenship in the kingdom of God. The new Jerusalem, you belong in the city of God. You are welcome by the one who matters most and the place who matters most. And his name is inscribed on you. And so I think I'll just kind of wrap this up pretty, pretty quick here. <laughs> but let's just remember that the one who matters most, he has the authority he is the divine key holder. And so, when we feel discouraged, we can remember that for the doors that God closes on us, that he opens other doors. Doors of access. Doors of entrance and welcome into his kingdom. And that God says of us, he says of us that we are a pillar and that we are not just another brick in the wall, but we are a necessary and permanent part of his kingdom. And we are not excluded and unwelcome, but we are a welcome, and we belong in his home. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you've brought this word to us to encourage us this morning. And I pray that when, you, when we are weak, and when we feel weak, that you would be our strength, and you would fill us with your spirit.
and you would show us who we are in you, that in you, we are strong, and in you, we are inscribed by the one who matters most, and we belong in your kingdom, O oh God. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, in Jesus' name.